Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. And just to update you, thanks in large part to many of you, uh, we've been able to purchase a new home in central Missoula. And there's a lot of work ahead of us when it comes to making another warehouse our church home. And you can continue to contribute to remodel and renovation funds at achurchbuilding.com. But we just want to express to you how grateful we are for your support. And we hope that this resource you're about to listen to will be a blessing for you as well. Uh, Lord, we pray so frequently in our services because uh, we know of what we are capable of and what you alone are capable of. So what we are capable of is all you've given us responsibility for, which is to ask for your grace and your mercy. Lord, we thank you for your word, um, which was given to us to change us, to conform us more and more into the image of Jesus, to correct us, to comfort us, and to commission us for ministry. Lord, we pray that the full weight of your word um, comes to bear in our hearts through the power of your Holy Spirit so that we might repent and worship and live our lives for your glory. We pray all this in your name. Amen. So most modern sports fans are familiar with an event in 2010 known by two simple words, the decision. The decision chronicled uh, LeBron James, who at that point was a league MVP, scoring champion, and perennial all-star whose contract was up with his team, and he now had the ability to decide which team he would go to play for. And the decision, as it came to be called, was actually a televised special where 13 million people tuned in to see which team LeBron James would choose to go to. And our passage today in the book of Proverbs, which Paul just read for us, has been spared all of the fanfare and all of the TV contracts and all of the ratings. But for thousands of years, hundreds of millions of people have read this passage not to watch the decision of another, but to actually make a decision for themselves. Today, we're concluding Solomon's prologue in the book, And what we've seen in these first nine chapters is this metaphorical father speaking to his metaphorical children for this very purpose, for this climactic passage that you might choose. Choose which path you will walk upon. There have been two primary metaphors Solomon is using in chapter nine. And the first is the metaphor I just used, the metaphor of a path. Will you choose the path of righteousness? Will you choose the path of folly? But the secondary metaphor we've seen in the last couple weeks is the path of two lovers. Will you choose Lady Wisdom or will you choose Lady Folly? At the heart of whether it's the path or whether it's the lover is not smart people versus dumb people or successful people versus poor people. At the heart of all of this are those who choose to rely on God's wisdom and God's grace as revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ and those who instead choose to view all of life through their own understanding. Next week, we get to the Proverbs that we generally think of when we think of the book of Proverbs. These are the practical, take one a day, call me in the morning Proverbs that we get to, that give us this wonderfully practical information on our time and our finances and our relationships and our parenting and on everything. But the wise man in following this righteous path sees everything which is about to follow in relationship to how God has proved himself faithful in Jesus Christ. All of it is seen in connection to the Lord. 
where the fool refuses to see all or any of those things as connected to God's faithfulness. He refuses to see the world through God's eyes. And this is why today at the conclusion of his prologue, Solomon's point is simple and profound, and that is this. This is the big picture we're going to see today, is that there is nothing more ultimate in life than who you decide to follow. There is nothing more ultimate in life than who you decide to follow. Which path will you follow? Which lover will you choose? Everything else in life is secondary to this choice. And so as a loving father would, he wants to help us make the best decision. And so to do this, he's going to do two things. He's going to first give us an external contrast by looking at lady folly and lady wisdom. He's going to hold those up outside of us just on their own merit, and he's going to compare and contrast. But then secondly, he's going to give us our own self-diagnostic tool to look inside. Instead of looking outside, we're going to look in, and we're going to look primarily at our own affections. And so those of you who were with us last week, there's a really similar thing he's doing. He's looking at the comparison between Lady Folly and Lady Wisdom. And that's what wisdom literature often does. It compares and it contrasts. And if you're following in the text which was just read, Proverbs 9, 1 through 18, you'll notice we're going to go a little bit out of order because we're going to look at verses 1 through 6, which is uh, talking of Lady Wisdom. And then we'll look at verses 13 through 18, which talk of Lady Folly. And after we've seen those bookends, then we're going to circle back to the middle. Because Solomon is actually doing something to lead us into this middle section in his writing. And so we're going to look at those comparisons to start. And before we read verses 1 through 6 and 13 through 18, there are two things I want you guys to listen for as we encounter this passage. The first is, where are these two passages similar? And the second is, where are these two passages different. And looking at this, we're seeing our first point today, which are the external contrasts between wisdom and folly. So read with me the first six verses. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. So now we're going to skip to verse 13. It says this, the woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to the one who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know the dead are there and that her guests are in the depths of Sheol, which again, Sheol is just the Hebrew word for the grave. And so looking at these passages, perhaps you have begun to notice the similarities and the differences And so on the similarities part, both passages depict this metaphorical woman who is calling you to her house, specifically to a feast. Both of these ladies are found in the highest place of town, which means they are found in the the place of cultural influence. Whatever influence has sway on culture, that is where this lady, these ladies are speaking from, whether it's social, political, or religious. And both of them, from that position of influence, 
are targeting the same people. That is, the simple. Or, what else Solomon says? Those who lack sense. Who are those who lack sense? Well, it's the one who is often naive or immature. They're both calling, they're both making this appeal to the, to the one who is immature, to the one who is impressionable, to the one who is still learning life on this journey to come in here, to come into my home. And so it's speaking to those who are impressionable. But here's the kicker. If you consider yourself as one who's wise, if you consider yourself as one who has known the gospel or walked with Jesus or has heard this passage for decades before, this passage is still for you. Because look at what Lady Folly is doing in verses 14 through 15. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their ways. She is not just calling to this, those who humbly consider themselves as simple or naive or in need of growth or impressionable. She is calling out even the wise person who is going straight on her own way. That means whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever background you have with Jesus or whatever background you don't have with Jesus, you are encountering these two voices at any given moment in time. Both of whom are in the same place, seemingly offering you the same thing. And in our world, the places of influence are no longer these places of religious power, but Lady Folly and her call is wonderfully adaptive. It's like a chameleon that changes to whatever is powerful in our own culture. Whether the call for belonging or for pleasure today looks philosophical or political or sexual or simple or docile, all of these calls that you hear in this world are after one thing. They're after your heart. They want your worship. They want you to follow, to turn, and to come. But only one of these voices is actually able to provide what is promised. Despite all of the similarities of the only two voices you will ever hear, there's a world of difference between the two. And that's what Solomon wants us to see here by not just pointing out what is similar, but by pointing out what is different. And there's three primary differences we can see in this text. And that's that Solomon wants us to compare three aspects of these two individuals. He wants us to compare their quality, their satisfaction, and their results. And so that's what we're going to look at really closely here. And first we see a comparison of quality. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her own seven pillars. Now here's the thing. Hobbyists can make things. Hobbyists don't hew anything. Hew is like we were building at the building yesterday. I hewed nothing. I put together a lot of things. But to say I hewed any of it just is, is silly. Maybe Kurt or Paul or John is able to hew. I'm able to just follow directions barely. And so this woman has hewn pillars. The picture that Solomon wants us to have is not this fickle foundation. This is solid. This is labored over. This is robust. This is hardy. This is steadfast. This building, this home that Lady Wisdom has built. And also there are seven pillars, meaning it is an impressive space. How many pillars do we have in here? One, two, three, four. We're almost at Lady Wisdom's house. Not quite, um, but there's seven. It is big. There is room for whoever wants to come into this place. And additionally, 
because she has diligently hewn her home, she's now actually turned all of her activities, all of her creative energies to actually laboring for your satisfaction. Did you notice that? The building is in the past. She's built her house. But what is she doing? She's making a meal. She has slaughtered her beasts. The brisket is on the smoker. The table is set. The house is warm. The wine has been mixed with spices worthy of the occasion. All that's left to do is come. That's the wonderful offer of grace. The work is done. You just need to come to the house of mercy. God is inviting you into something you can't create and which you don't deserve. But that's what Jesus calls us to in the gospel. That's what wisdom invites us to freely partake of, if only we would turn. But by contrast, look at Lady Folly in verse 13. The woman Folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. Wisdom has hewn her pillars. Lady Folly has a loud voice. Wisdom is skilled to labor on her home. She is making a dinner party which would make Joanna Gaines blush. Folly sounds good, makes a lot of racket, but knows nothing. In fact, the Hebrew word translated loud in your text is, was often used in that time in an agricultural sense to describe a camel that has escaped its flock. It's all bark and no bite. Or in this sense, all promise and no payout. Well, Lady Wisdom has busied herself baking for your own pleasure. What is Lady Folly doing? Look at verse 14. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of town. You see, this is studying the Bible. This is what we want to do with wisdom literature. Look at all of the activity that Lady Wisdom is doing. And what's Lady Folly doing? She's sitting. What are we to take away? She's lazy. She's not laboring to satisfy you at all. She just wants to get you there. That's her only end. She doesn't care what you actually experience. She doesn't want to actually serve you. And if you think about the sin you encounter in your life, the vices you turn to, to provide what only God can give, when have those ever actually proactively served you? When, after a hard day, has your phone leapt onto your lap, unlocked itself, selected the Netflix icon, and started streaming for you? When have riches gone to the store and purchased your favorite ice cream and brought it and set it on your table? When has anger bravely fought your battles in your life without causing you greater harm down the road? When has sloth promised to defend you and actually fulfilled that from the anxiety you fear in your life. Never has sin ever shown us that it actually cares for us. It just wants us to get to its room. The call of sin in life is lazy and it is loud. But Jesus, our Savior, is busy for us. He came down from heaven to us. He lived among us. He died for us, and through faith, he has given his spirit to dwell in us. No one loves and serves 
the simple and those who lack sense like God does in sending Jesus to save us from our sins. No one wants to satisfy you at the level of cost God himself has incurred to save you. While all the voices of culture call for you to turn, they all want you to come to your house. You in this life are not autonomous. You are not king. We are all followers. It's just a matter of who you're following. Only one voice has a quality of care as abundant as Jesus does in taking you off of the streets and putting you by faith in the wonderful house of wisdom. The quality of wisdom is unparalleled to the quality of care of sin. But this leads to a second comparison. That's a comparison of satisfaction. What does Lady Wisdom offer? Chapter nine, verse five. Come and eat of my bread and drink of the wine that I have mixed. And so that's uh, when you, Jesus isn't watering down the wine here. Lady Wisdom's not trying to stretch it. She's actually mixing spices and seasonings into the wine to make it taste more delicious and celebratory. What does Lady Folly offer? Verse 17. Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. So remember a couple weeks ago, I used this illustration from uh, Rudyard Kipling's The Jungle Book with the Bandar Log, this group of monkeys that uses its words to entice Mowgli to come hang out with them, but they just want to make him a slave. And Baloo warns Mowgli, and he says, don't listen to them because they only have stolen language. Here we see the stolen language of Lady Folly once more. She only steals. But Lady Wisdom offers what she possesses richly. Did you notice all the repeated words in this passage? And so when we're studying the Bible, hopefully you guys are doing Bible reading with us. We're finishing, we just finished Genesis together. And one thing you want to look for are repeated words. And that's not just because we like, you know, search and find Bible study. It actually helps us understand what's going on. Because look at this intentional thing that Solomon is saying about wisdom. It is her house, her seven pillars, her beasts, her wine, her table, her young messengers. What are we to take? Lady wisdom has it all and she's offering it. Everything she has she has rightfully in her possession, and she's inviting you to it. Lady Folly, on the other hand, has only what she can steal, only what she can find at dumpster diving behind the house of God's grace. And maybe this is just a problem for men, but have you ever been invited to a dinner party? You see all the guests who are there, and you look at the food that's on the table, and you ask yourself that one question. Where in your gut, you begin to say, I don't know if there's enough food here for all of us. It's the worst thing that could ever happen. <laughs> it curbs our joy. It makes us anxious. We selfishly start getting a pecking order. Like, that guy weighs less than me, I get more. That's how it works. And here's the trick. All you guys know it. We, we in, in a, a devious attempt of sin, we try to humbly go last. But that's just so that we know everyone else has eaten and we could take more. But that dilemma is every meal you will ever eat in the house of sin. It will always run out because it's never hers to give. She doesn't have a kitchen. She only has thieving hands. There's no field, no pasture, no provision, just stolen goods neatly packaged. 
Whatever pleasure you might get out of sin, there's more in the house of wisdom. Whatever satisfaction sin might offer, the gospel offers more. And there's this principle in here which is key for us as we think about life in our modern world. And it's one that we often wrestle with, and that is this, that the most pleasure we can get in life is pleasure that comes where God has prescribed it. In other words, it is taking the things that God has given to us and realizing that we can enjoy those only where God has given them for us to enjoy. And this is contrary from the world. And the world offers pleasures from food and sex and comfort. And they say, here are these fun tools. Use them however you want. Have them as much as you want. But no one ever gets satisfaction from them. But here God, and we'll see through Proverbs, speaks of riches and comfort and food and sex. But says you will actually find pleasure not when you get to design the rules for them, but when you understand how God has intended them to be used. And to eat of any of those things outside the boundaries of God's intent for them is to taste the, sto- the sweetness of stolen water, which will quickly run out. Now, there's two things we need to pay attention to in that. One is that we understand it's stolen and it'll soon run out. But the other is that it's sweet. It tastes good, even if but for a moment. No one sins because it tastes foul in our mouths. It tastes sweet in our mouths, but it poisons our guts. We bite because the water is sweet and bread eaten in the shame of secrecy might be pleasant for a time. But let's zoom out here. Like let's, let's take off our Bible reading glasses and let's survey on our own the two tables that are presented here. Who would want the water and bread of stolen sin when the steak and wine of grace is offered at the other table? Don't we want to say, it's sweet water and pleasant bread. But look at the tables. Who wants that meal? When there is an ox slaughtered and wine mixed with spices and a table prepared with the two plates, not just the one and the six forks, not just the one that any normal person would use. It's got everything. It is a better table altogether. But our hearts bite the sweetness of stolen water. C.S. Lewis nails this when he says this, this famous quote. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. Wisdom offers satisfaction unparalleled if only you would find it where she has said it, in the house of God. But more than mere satisfaction, what is actually being displayed here by the Father in Proverbs 9 is the stunning reality that lies behind the metaphorical tables. Look with me at verses 5 and 6. This is Lady Wisdom. Come and eat of my bread and drink of the wine that I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. There is life at the table of Lady Wisdom. But look at the table of Lady Folly. Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. 
but he does not know that the dead are there and that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. This is the final contrast we see. This is a comparison of results. See, it's true that the language and the imagery that's being presented are those of pleasure, of satisfaction, and of wisdom. But if the only framework through which we view our Christian walk in the gospel of Jesus Christ is simply pleasure and satisfaction and wisdom, we will miss the seriousness of what lies behind all of this. Because we will have times in our life where following Jesus will not seem pleasurable by worldly standards. We'll have times where following Jesus will be met by the charge of our neighbors and our culture with the cry, fool. First Peter, or Peter says this in, he might be the first Peter, but Peter says this in first Peter. He says, they won't understand you when you no longer partake in what you once engaged in. But that's where we must see here behind our desire for pleasure is actually the desire to be spared from death and judgment. We lack pleasure and satisfaction precisely because we have separated ourselves from God who gives us pleasure and satisfaction. This problem is our own problem and it's called sin. But God in his grace has offered a solution and a salvation by restoring us back to him. If we turn to God's wisdom, if we read life through his eyes, we find life. If we come to Jesus knowing that God is faithful to save us by sending his son to pay for the punishment of our sinful rebellion, you will get life and salvation or what we'll see later on in verse 11, by, you, by him, your days will be multiplied and your years will be added to your life. That means this, that to never see God's wisdom in the gospel is not just to miss out in life. It is to actually lose your life. We are not debating about which life satisfies us the most. What you're debating when you're debating this is that which life actually saves. And nothing saves except for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus, who's the true picture of Lady Wisdom, shares a similar parable to what we see in Proverbs 9 in Matthew chapter 22. Listen here. Again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited. See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Did you hear Proverbs 9, 1 and 2 there? But they pay no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants and treated them shamefully and killed them. The king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. And so what we see here is that to reject the call to the feast of God to not choose the path of wisdom 
is to choose violent insurrection against God's own son, whom you reject and your sin puts on the cross. God is faithful to judge, and in doing that, you would get the punishment you deserve, but God has reissued another call. He has reissued another invitation, something which whether you are a good person or a bad person, your identity uh, is defined by one thing. That is, did you come and do you understand? This new call that comes out, not to those who are privileged with royalty, but to those to whom God has chosen to call. But look at how this plays out in the concluding verses, verses 11 through 13. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this sounds like a terrible situation. (laughs) This sounds like perhaps this king is acting unjustly. And here we see this group in which many comes, both bad and good, who are responding to the call. But there was one man who had no idea why he was actually called or to what he was showing up to. In fact, we can assume that he was indifferent to everything that was set before him. Everyone else was dressed. Everyone else knew why they were there. But he refused to even change his clothes because of it. Jesus' parable and Proverbs 9 both want us to not be like this man who thought he responded to the call, but whose life actually showed he had no relational understanding of where he stood in the story. There was nothing different in his response to the call. And this is why Solomon actually gives us the middle portion of Proverbs chapter 9 of this section, because he wants you to consider, but he actually wants to give you confidence He wants you to know if you are one who has actually responded in the right way to the call to the feast which has gone out. Have you responded to the right woman? Are you walking on the right path? And this is where he turns to two internal tests of our own affection. This is our second point, the internal affections in Proverbs 9. It's here we encounter two tests which help us understand if we are on the right path and in the right way. And the first internal test of affection is actually a response to counsel. How is it that you respond to counsel or to correction? Look at Proverbs 9, 7 through 9. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. Whoever reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer, he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. So how might you discern if you have actually responded to God's call? If you've changed your clothes? Well, here's one way. How do you respond to the counsel of God? How do you respond to God's corrective teaching? And here we see this teaching in kind of two places. The first is Lady Wisdom herself, the word of God, God's word. But we also see that that there's a counsel of God's people in this text, right? We said in verse three, Lady Wisdom has sent her young messengers to proclaim God's call to others. Now let's be clear, no one likes correction. 
No one longs for discipline. But there's a difference between liking something and railing against it. But to respond to the gospel is to respond to a corrective call in your life. The gospel innately corrects. The presupposition of the gospel is this, that there is a God and you're not it. Jesus' grace corrects us and it puts us in wonderful submission by calling us to repent of our own desire to be God. It corrects our vision and places us under God's authority. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, King David has successfully in his own mind covered up a really heinous sin. But the prophet Nathan comes to him and he shares this illustration with David. He makes up this story of this man in his kingdom who has sinned against another man. And beneath the story, Nathan's metaphor is describing exactly what David did. And at the end, Nathan says, O king, what should happen to this man? And David says, the full of the law should be poured out on him to right what he has wronged. And Nathan knew he had him. At that point, he turns to David and he says, you are the man. You are the one who needs correction. If you are one in here who cannot stand the idea of God's word having a shaping, correcting, and restoring influence on your affections and on your actions, you are the man. If you are one who constantly runs from the, what are probably imperfect actions of your brother and sister in Christ to call you gently but firmly away from sin and back to God, you are the man. You are the fool. The fool refuses to heed the counsel of God's word and God's people and responds belligerently, violently, and with hostility towards any corrective impulse. But the wise person understands this and is himself reproved. The call of Lady Wisdom that you see begins with an imperative, come. But it's a call to come, to obey, and to eat and find satisfaction. No one avoids correction in the Bible's economy. No one starts out on the right path. No one does God come alongside and just say, you're doing great, see you at the end. Everyone starts with God coming in the gospel and saying, come over here. Stop walking there. Stop loving her. Come to the better house. But the wise man sees this corrective energy and it realizes the grace of correction. It realizes that every time our sinful heart runs up against God's word or on a lesser level, God's people, that it is doing so to pull you away from what hurts you and to steer you into what benefits you. And so are you someone who has invited God's word into your heart as king in your actions and in your decisions, even when it seems at odds to what you or what culture says is most enjoyable? Are you someone who though imperfectly accepts the correction and advice of those who love Jesus alongside of you? If so, my friends, you should have some confidence that you are walking in God's path of wisdom. 
And to us as the church, the counsel we receive from God in God's wisdom is actually intended to turn us towards those who are around us. Remember, all the way back in Proverbs chapter 1, Solomon opens up and look at what he says in verses 2 through 4. So picking up in verse 2, to know wisdom and instruction. So this is the purpose. Why is he writing these, pro- these Proverbs? To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. So here's this receiving. For what purpose? So that you might give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. And so he's teaching the wise as it continues that you're receiving this wisdom so that you can give wisdom. We get wisdom so that we give it. And this is the call of discipleship that what we receive in the gospel, we turn and give to others. And so as we disciple others, we sometimes have the hard work of discerning those who are abusive fools. But at the same time, we know that when we encounter those circumstances, that we are not the chief counselor. That Jesus Christ might intercede in those dead hearts himself and save them in the same way he saved you. There is hope behind all of our imperfect interactions and discipleship moments because Jesus is the one who saves sinners. And this is what leads us to the second test of our affections. And this is our response to God. Look at verses 10 through 12. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me, your days will be multiplied and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. So there we see this center relational point. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Now again, repeated words. Remember that word insight? Haven't we seen that already? Verse six The call of Lady Wisdom is to leave your simple ways and walk in the way of insight. Well, now insight has been defined for us. What is insight? What does it mean to walk in wisdom? It means that you know at a relational level the Holy One of God. You know Him. You have knowledge of Him. I watched an episode of the show The Amazing Race once, and they were in Japan And the challenge was that the contestants went into this room filled with sushi, which already is nerve-wracking to me. And in this room, there was one piece of sushi that was plastic, and all of the others were real. And they had to find and identify the plastic piece of sushi. But the catch was, if you identified one that was a real piece of sushi, you had to eat it. And by the end of this challenge, most of these teams were so sick from eating sushi that they didn't even want to go on. They couldn't identify the real one, and they were so sick of tasting the substitutes. But here in the gospel of Jesus, God's grace in his wisdom shows us the one we need to know. In a world full of calls competing for the same response, God shows us the one that's authentic. How? Because the one who is authentic actually came to us. We know what we are looking for because he took on flesh and dwelt among us. Look at how Paul speaks of this again in 1 Corinthians, beginning in verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? 
Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But, but listen here, but to those who are called, do you hear the call of Lady Folly? The call of Lady Wisdom? Both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So if you remember, and I hope you will, our definition of the fear of the Lord as we're working through Proverbs is that the fear of the Lord is a reverent reliance upon God. Where do we become reliant upon God? Where is it that we turn from a false reliance on ourselves as God, or our culture as God, or our politicians as God, and rely on God as God? We become reliant by clinging relationally, exclusively, and faithfully to Jesus Christ, his son. Walking in the insight of the Lord is not merely a doctrinal exam. It is not merely moral performance. It is not a socioeconomic bracket. It is not a political party. It is a relationship with Jesus Christ who is the wisdom of God. What doomed the fool in the parable of the wedding feast? Though he made it into the house, he didn't know the groom. He saw nothing to change for. He had no relational sense of what knowing the groom demanded from his life for his joy. But the wise person sees Jesus and realizes that apart from him, you will dine in the halls of sin forever. Without Jesus, without the knowledge that comes to us like a friend in the gospel, you will never be wise. Without knowing God, you will never be wise. And without knowing Jesus, you will never know God. The only way we see God rightly is through seeing Jesus who has displayed him perfectly and responding to our sin and choosing to worship and repent. Look at Jesus' promise, which again echoes our passage today. In John 14, verses one through three. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. For those who wonder which path you've chosen, here is the one calling you to the right house who has promised to take you there. You can dream in your life about all of the myriad of destinations you want and some of them can be great ideas. You wanna be good parents, friendly neighbors, businessmen and women who contribute to society. But if you do not know God by faith in Jesus Christ, you will never end up where you want to be. It can never get you there. But Jesus brings us all the way there and has promised to do so again when he comes back. 
Jesus gets us there because wisdom's house, this wonderful house in Proverbs 9 is his house. Wisdom's feast is his feast. Wisdom's call is his call. All of the practical wisdom which is going to follow in this book finds its source here in this relational reliance to Jesus. If you miss the relational knowledge of Jesus, the practical wisdom of the Bible means nothing because it's meant to get you to a person. All you have to do Here's the beauty of the gospel. All you have to do is come. That is so dumb. (laughs) That is so astounding. It is so humiliating that we might be silly enough to not do this, to think that we can do better, to think that we ought to do something more to qualify us, to think that there is a better feast But here the gospel is calling freely and openly to come into God's love. The gospel call does not go out to the put together, to the fully accomplished, or to the already there. The call of the gospel goes to those who are simple and who lack sense, but whose provision is made up for in the abundant mercy of Jesus Christ. Charles Bridges says this so beautifully. When looking at these two tables, he says this. Here, sinner, is thy warrant, not thy worthiness, but thy need, and the invitation of the Lord. All the blessings of the gospel are set before you, love without beginning, end, or change. Honor the freeness of his mercy. Let him have the full glory of his own grace. So how do you respond to this text? the right application isn't actually to decide because each of us already have. All of us are walking on a road that we have chosen. But the beauty of the gospel is it gives you the ability to re-decide with new information seen and spoken in the gospel to turn to Christ. And so we do two things. We assess our own hearts we consider our own response to the offer of grace. And then secondly, we repent and we worship. Do you want to put on the clothes of grace? Repent. Change your path. Come to Jesus. And we only do that when we've seen the beauty of the Holy One, which means repentance and worship are tied together. And so now we get to worship him by relying on him. This is where Solomon is going. You worship God, you show your repentance to him by relying on him in every area of life so that you might have fellowship with him here and the ultimate fellowship with him later. And so this is the call to wisdom, the call made possible by God's gospel and the privilege of the church to respond in wisdom to God's grace by repenting and worshiping. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you, um, I pray that you do more than just show us the simplicity of contrast between your mercy in the gospel and the foolishness of sin. I pray because you've promised to do so that you empower our hearts to choose that which is foreign to us. That you give us mercy to taste and see the goodness of God. I pray that you protect our hearts from the false calls of sin. For those of us who are on the way, that we get to help each other say no to sin and say yes to God's grace of table fellowship with him. Lord, I pray that those in here 
who hear this call, whether they've been Christian for decades or for weeks, that they would hear the correction in this text and experience the grace that comes in hearing the good news of the gospel. We pray all of this in your name. Amen.